1: You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 81 of The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. Today, I have an incredible conversation with one of my favorite people in this space, and he has written what I believe is one of the most important books I've ever read. It is that important because his message is one that every last one of you needs to hear. Not some of you, not most of you, but every last one of you. A message that should and will resonate with anybody interested in accomplishing anything great or simply reclaiming their lives. I'll share that message and that conversation in a few moments, but spoiler alert, my guest is Michael Gervais, and my dude is brilliant, and this is an amazing conversation that I cannot wait to bring to you. Now, before that, I do want to share something with you. So a friend of mine asked me recently, hey, Jim, where are you? Where are you at with your journey? How are things? And the truth is, there's been a lot of changes in my life personally and professionally of late, and it's ongoing. And frankly, it's a little disruptive, it's a little unsettling, and honestly, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I've been sort of out of alignment and knocked off my path a few times. I'll be transparent with you about that. I know it. I'll own it. Here's what else I know. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody gives a damn what I'm going through. You know what else? Frankly, nobody gives a damn what you're going through. They're too consumed with what they're going through. So here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to embrace it, all of it. I'm going to embrace the suck. I'm going to embrace what's great. I'm going to convert every last bit of it, all of it, into fuel and energy. And I'm not going to give any oxygen or energy to anything that jacks with my focus or energy for my mission, no energy vampires, no haters are going to hook me because I'm on a freaking mission. Now, while I can't be fully transparent about what that professional mission is just yet, I can tell you this. I have never been more energized, more focused, more determined, more locked in, and more obsessed with my vision for the future and how to build it, and then how to execute it. Let me repeat that. I have a vision of what I want. I've burned it into my mental hard drive. It's always there. I'm always thinking about it. And then secondly, having that vision is not enough. I need to create systems, tactics, and a process for building the infrastructure to deliver on that vision something I'm devoting a lot of time to and energy right now. And then number three, once I create that vision, and a process for delivering on it, then I need to actually execute on it, murder it, crush it, because opportunities like this are very rare and they do not come along very often. I know this. I feel this in my bones. I am rewiring my brain for this current challenge. I'm rebuilding my body for this challenge, and I'm doing things that enable me to bring the most energy and enthusiasm, and positivity to this challenge. I am ready to go to war with myself and with it, whatever it is, to deliver for my partners and my associates. And most of all, this is not lip service or bullshit. This is an obsession. I'm all freaking in. And if it sounds like I'm serious, it's because professionally, I've never wanted anything as much as I want this. No BS. I want it. I need it. I need to prove something to myself. I need to prove something to others. I want to prove the people who believe in me right, and I want to continue to lead from the front and make them proud of me, and I want to prove to everybody else I'm here to create, build, compete, create value for my partners, and a great product for my listeners, my followers, and my viewers, and to do something and build something that I've never done before. Yeah, I know. Cryptic much Rome? Great Rome. What the hell is it? What are you talking about? That's fair. But what it is isn't as important as my vision, my commitment to creating and building that vision, and my obsession with executing on it. We're still in the planning stages of building Rome 2.0. And I'll tell you more when I can. But in the meanwhile, my main message to you is I want 2.0 as badly as I wanted it when I broke into this business decades ago. And if you want this microphone, you can rip it out of my cold, dead hands because right now I am deadly serious about becoming the person I've always wanted to become, building the brand and the business that I've always wanted to build. And that's coming from somebody who already went into the Radio Hall of Fame back in 2019. And now that I am crystal clear on what it is I want and the price I'm willing to pay to get it, everything suddenly now is falling into place because I know exactly what I want and the discipline required to achieve it. So my advice to you, do what I'm doing because it feels good and it's working. My advice to you, create your dream and vision. Build the infrastructure and the processes necessary to make that vision a reality, and then attack that blueprint for your dream or vision every freaking day with every ounce of energy, grit, and courage you have. Attack it. Attack it as if your life depends upon it, because if you ask me, your life does depend upon it. Maybe not your actual life, but certainly the life that you want to live your best life no more waiting no more complaining no more excuses day one all in let's freaking go which brings me to today's guest now you may have heard him on this pod before and if i'm doubling up on a guest you know it's for a very good reason in this case it is a great reason i'm talking about dr michael gervais one of the world's top high performance psychologists and leading experts on the relationship between the mind and human performance. He has written a brilliant new book entitled The First Rule of Mastery. Stop worrying about what people think of you. Now, you may think that you don't care what other people think of you, but you probably do. And on top of that, Michael would tell you that FOPO, or fear of what other people think of you is the single biggest obstacle to people reaching their highest potential. And isn't that the very reason that we're all here to reach our highest potential? So wouldn't you want to know everything you could about the one thing that's keeping you from achieving the main thing, the most important thing, your highest potential? Well, I've got your man, It's episode 81 of The Reinvention Project with guest Dr. Michael Gervais, and it's coming at you right now. Michael, absolutely awesome to visit with you once again and talk about your new groundbreaking book, my man. Thank you for making time. How are you, Michael? What's going on?
0: I'm stoked to be with you, and I love your fire, Jim, and life is good. Good.
1: I love it. I love to spend time with you. I appreciate this so much. In fact, Michael, let's jump right into it. I want to discuss the book. It's entitled The First Rule of Mastery. Stop worrying about what other people think of you or what people think of you. The title of the book, Michael, of course, suggests the answer to the question, but let me ask it anyway. In your opinion, what is the biggest obstacle to people reaching their highest potential?
0: If the question was reframed, what is the biggest obstacle for people experiencing their best health? And I said to you, it would be to put down the poison that you're drinking every day. You go, oh, yeah, that's probably pretty good. We don't want to drink poison to be, you know, that doesn't square well with being healthy. It's the same thing psychologically, is that the poison that we're drinking psychologically, so to speak, is outsourcing our sense of being okay in the eyes of others. When we outsource that sense of being, you know, um, accepted as opposed to being authentic, we run into problems. And I am not suggesting that we don't care about what other people think. I am suggesting that this excessive worry about am I okay in the based on how others are seeing me that that excessive worry is so toxic, it's so constricting that we never really get to know what we're capable of and what we can do in this lifetime. And I think it's one of the greatest constrictors of our potential is this excessive fear of other people's opinions.
1: So let me tell you about something. The other day, I come across a product that all of us should be carrying around. It's amazing. It's something different for fresh breath. It is an incredible product called Zellman's Minty Mouth. And guys, it is a game changer. If you're up in the grill of somebody else and you're making your case for whatever it is, make sure your breath is fresh. Zellman's cleans your breath in a way that other mints don't and can't because it's not just a mint. It's a functional breath freshener capsule that you swallow. It's clinically tested against the toughest offenders, even garlic and onions. You just pop two or three in your mouth, suck the minty coating, then swallow the capsule for the confidence of fresh, clean breath that lasts for hours. The product is like nothing else you've ever tried. It fights bad breath in your mouth. It then goes right down to your gut. This is the ultimate hack to get rid of coffee, garlic, or smoker's breath. You're going to like having the confidence of long-lasting fresh breath, or you get your money back guaranteed. These folks will give you your money back. Not that you're going to want it, but they will. They've got free shipping if you order three packs or more, and trust me, you're going to want more. And nobody likes to pay for shipping. Go to Zelmans.com right now. That's Z-E-L-M-I-N-S.com. Right now, you'll get 15% off when you use the promo code ROAM. Z-E-L-M-I-N-S.com. You do have to use the code ROAM to get your 15% savings, R-O-M-E. All right, so FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. What are the main consequences of giving into that?
0: when we give into that and by the way our brains from a biological perspective are designed to scan the world and pick out all the dangers and one of the greatest dangers is the 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 potential rejection because we all know the tribal story that you know a couple hundred thousand years ago if you and i got kicked out of the tribe it was a near death sentence it was too much to fight and fend and forge and hunt and gather by ourselves that we need the community we need the tribe and so our brain is designed to scan the world for the slightest hint of rejection. So when we, when we don't tune to it at all, we end up getting pushed out anyways because we're not contributing to the center. We're not, we're not being a good community member. But when we over index it as well, what ends up taking place is that we shape shift. So we conform to jokes that are not funny we contort in ways to just be liked rather than to stand for something. We, we challenge each other or critique each other in ways to, it, where it's more about just taking the temperature rather than speaking one's truth. And so when we critique another person or critique somebody not in our presence, it's actually a way to align, to check if we're okay. If I critique you and you're like, oh, wait, whoa, 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 what just happened? I thought we were good. Um, And then I get to go, oh yeah, we are good. Okay, good. If you and I are critiquing a third person who's not around us, then it's a way for us to misalign, but in a misaligned way. And so conform, contort, critique. And if it doesn't, if it all feels overwhelming when we're afraid of what other people think of us, we just don't show up anymore. We don't bring ourselves sometimes physically to to the events and we don't bring ourselves emotionally because it feels too much. Now, if those things take place, whether it's on a sport team or it's on an executive team or a family community, what ends up taking place is people don't know who we are. They don't know how to rely on us. They don't know what we stand for. So they're always kind of on the outside, wondering if you're reliable or not. If you're one of us in the action sport world, we call it OKP, this is an our kind of people. And so, you know, can I trust you is what that means. And so if we're constantly shape-shifting to be approved of, not rejected, then people don't really know who we are. And we end up never really um, authentically expressing ourselves, and we never are fully accepted by others. So we kind of walk around isolated, anxious, a bit depressed, wondering if we're okay.
1: Well, what a powerful response. I'm sorry to jump in there. I was so eager to jump in. There was so much to unpack in that. I mean, Michael, if people don't know who we are, that's a bad thing. If we don't know who we are, that's a worse thing. If we're so vulnerable to the opinions of others, how can we stop worrying about what other people think about
0: us? What's that process? Okay. So I'm going to answer that with you know great clarity, but I also first want to ask, you know, Jim, have you ever, have you ever felt it? Like, you know, you're at the front leading conversations publicly, you know, you've been doing it for decades. Like have do you does FOPO show up for you in in your private life, in your public life? Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And how how does that show up for you?
1: You know, I would say to be very honest with you, because you know, it used to be when I first started, Michael, if somebody had a real problem with me, you know, if I encountered it firsthand or in person, that was one thing and, and that would happen. But you know, it's the world, especially with social media, it's become so toxic. And I don't mean across the board, but there is that minority that's very, very vocal and they need to gather someplace and they want to let you know. And if you continue to visit that and you hear that message over and over and over again, whatever the message is, because we can't control those controllables, right? Somebody, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, somebody's not going to be happy. And if I keep getting banged over the head with that, then I'm not going to feel good about that, right? I'm not going to feel good about me. I'm not going to feel good about that. So what do I do about that? How do I handle that? I'll be honest with you. I don't go out of my way to find it. I don't hide from it. I don't pretend that it doesn't exist, but I'm not going to keep going places
0: that make me uncomfortable or unhappy. There you go. Okay. So when you when you get a bunch of feedback that I don't know what percentage of your community are trolls or critics or, you know... Have an easy an, uh, opinion that is shrouded in um, being anonymous. I don't know if that's you know what percentage of people you have, but like when that bubbles to the surface, what what do you do with it? How do you manage it?
1: I, I, I you got, okay. If you want me to answer the question, my my feeling is and not to go into athlete mode or cliche mode. I can't control that. I can't control that, so I don't want that to affect the way I feel about myself, and I don't want that to affect the way I prepare, and I don't want that to affect the way I perform. I understand it for what it is. You know, that person either is miserable or that person genuinely doesn't like me and has an issue with me. I can't control any of that. I have enough to concern myself with in producing and presenting a product every single day that is compelling and saliable, and I've got a responsibility, a responsibility to me, a responsibility to my team, a responsibility to the people I work for. I try to focus on just that. So I try and, I mean, it is cliche, but I really am focused on the things that matter most. I'm trying to keep the main thing the main thing and block out all that excess noise because that is noise, and it doesn't make me or my product better.
0: The signal to noise ratio, I'm so glad you brought this up, is an engineering term. And, uh, you know, y- you and your team know exactly what that is to create high fidelity in the sound of right. what we're doing. Signal to noise ratio. It's also a psychological term. So noise are all the things that you can't control. Those are. The, it's the chatter of others. It's the worry about, you know, what's going to happen later. And the signal, the signal is only available in the present moment. So the noise is the external stuff that that um, pulls us away from the signal, and the signal is the present moment, and it's it's a being able to, while in the present moment, tune to the most relevant things in this moment. So it's not just being present, it's tuning to the things that are most important, most powerful in this present moment. And if you can, if you can do that, if you have the mental skills to get out the noise, to get to the signal, you are on the path of mastery. And so that's you and I just unpacked like the the meta of how to do it based on your, your 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 question of me, and it's also to be better at understanding how to work with FOPO. First first order business is say welcome to the club, just welcome. <laughs> like this is something that's happening that we haven't put a light on, we haven't talked about that the fear of other people's opinions, the fear of rejection, that the the need for acceptance is biologically grounded in safety. And we pretend like it's not there, but it's there for all of us. And the second part is that there's three parts of FOPO. There's that part where you're anticipating, you know, like, I don't know, you're playing all the scenarios of what could go wrong later and will I be accepted if, and what will they think of me if I don't? And so there's that whole anticipation phase, and that's the bulk of FOPO. And I'll make it really concrete. That phase is like, if you're going to a social event and you're in your closet, picking out what you want to wear, you're picking out clothes that are not really for you, but it's for the acceptance. It's for fitting in. It's for the making sure that you're at least meeting the vibe of the room. And even if you feel a little uncomfortable because you've, I don't know, you put on 10 pounds or lost 10 pounds, you know, or, you know, it's like making the inauthentic choice rather than the authentic choice. And that takes up, that worrying takes up the bulk of FOPO. And then when you're actually in it, when you're actually in an engagement with a, another person, there's a the second phase is marked by checking. So it's this reflexive, you know, scanning for external cues of acceptance or rejection. And there's a methodology to work with that checking. I'll get to it in a minute. And the third way to understand FOPO is it the way that you respond. And are you responding like I talked about earlier in a way you're conforming or contorting, you know, are you critiquing or disconnecting, or, you know, cutting off the relationship and there's an appropriate response there to work with FoPo. So part one is if you're worrying a lot about what they peop- uh, what other people think, come back to the present moment. Hmm. What is the training to come back to the present moment? Meditation, journaling, conversations with people of wisdom. Those three best practices help increase your internal awareness, and then give you the skills to come back to this moment. And that what might be one of the greatest tools to work with FOPO, those three. Meditation, journaling, or conversation with people wisdom. And oh, by the way, all three of those are happening in elite sport behind the velvet rope on a regular basis. All three. No question,
1: right? So, Michael, what about when you talk about, like, what's going on above our shoulders? Why are negative thoughts so much more magnetic or powerful or
0: sticky than positive ones? Oh, I know you know the answer to this, Jim. You're not going to slip it by me like you you don't know. I know you know the answer here, but I'm going to entertain you, is that the negative ones, the self-critical, is all about fitting in. Am I not good enough? And if I can be hard enough on myself, if I can beat myself up a little bit better, the the bet is that I'll rise to an occasion, that I'll work a little bit harder, that I'll pay more attention to detail, that I'll try harder, which is all in error. All of that is is a disaster recipe for people being their very best. But that so why is it so important? Because it's a failed attempt, because no one at a young age taught us how to work with our own content of our mind. And so the negative thoughts are ways, um, again, misaligned to help us be better. And why are they so much more powerful? Is because they hurt and they sting. And our brain is supposed to gauge and remember things that hurt and sting that are foul. And so we often say things, how do you know that it hurts? Because we often say things to ourselves. About ourselves, that we would never say to another person. We'd never tell one of our dear friends, "You look you look like a fat slob," or, <laughs> "Wow, you've really lost a ton of weight. You got to do something with yourself." or, "Hey, you know, I know you know you're stupid, but um, you know, you probably should keep your mouth shut at these parties because everyone's going to find out." We would never say those things to somebody else because we wouldn't want them to feel a certain way about who they are. We, we would rather them say – we'd rather find a better way to work with, I don't know, whatever challenge that they might be facing. or that, But we don't do that for ourselves. And I have heard that statement, if not 100, 1,000 times from World's Best, oh, I'd never speak to – oh, the way I speak to myself, I'd never talk to my friends that way. No way. Why not? Why not, Mr. or Mrs. Hall of Famer? Why not? Because, like, I, I can handle it. But like, I wouldn't want them to have to deal with that. Oh, okay. So um, the, it just wears out though over time. It might get you good. Might might get you good if you're only kicking your ass in your one dimension and how you speak to yourself. It'll never lead to fulfillment and happiness. It'll never lead to the good life, um, which is a combination of feeling a way about yourself, feeling a way about how you experience experiences, and being very skilled at something. That's what I think about the good life.
1: I was going to ask you about the good life. I may still double back, Michael, and ask you about the good life, but you covered that right Mm -hmm. there, I think. Let me ask you this. This is not the good life, but it's something I think that virtually everybody listening right now is dealing with, some level of stress, some level of anxiety. What are the
0: very real consequences
1: of stress and anxiety?
0: So let's be clear about those two words. So anxiety is the psychological activity where i am excessively worrying about something going wrong in the future so that is it is a psychologically well-defined term anxiety there are a whole host of well-researched best practices to work with anxiety so anxiety is an excessive worry okay you can express it in two ways the rumination of thought and or the somatic experience of your stomach feels like it's bubbled up or you know you've Constantly sweating, or you've got a light little handshake, or you can't sleep well. There's a whole host of somatic, um, you know, experiences of anxiety. So you've got coma- uh, cognitive anxiety, somatic anxiety, but it's this excessive worry about later. And stress is not problematic. So there's three types types of stress. So we throw stress around like it's you know the word Kleenex. You know, like it it's one thing for all things. That's not it. It's it's branded, it's got a branding problem, really. There's three types of stress. There is acute stress, there is moderate stress, and then there's chronic stress. So acute stress is like if a silverback runs into you know our room right now that our bodies ought to turn on. Our bodies ought to be ready without having to think about anything to respond to that immediate challenge. That's acute stress. That's a really good thing. Now, if you don't know how to shed acute stress, if you don't know how to work the problem, the challenge, the opportunity, I don't know if a gorilla, you know, silverback gorilla is an opportunity, but if you don't know how to work it and recover properly, you stay elevated. So many of us have an intellectual problem that we have early in the day, acute alarm, alarm bell goes off. Now we're in an elevated state. And we're just trying to hang on the rest of the day because we don't know how to properly downregulate, how to recover well. And you can get away with that for a while. If you stay elevated and you kind of stay in that phase for a while, that turns into moderate stress. You know, a couple of weeks, you know, with a little bit of sleep or compromised sleep, like you could stay elevated for a while. And under moderate stress, we actually do pretty good work. Maybe even some of our best work. All systems are on. We're thinking clearly, creatively, you know, we're, we're responding to challenges. But after a handful of weeks, we move into phase three. Phase three is chronic stress. Chronic stress underlies just about every physical and psychological condition. Every ailment, just about every disorder, there is chronic stress that is around, part of it, preceding or secondary to it. Chronic stress is a problem for our health. It is, um, we are trying to operate with very low fuel at this time. And Hans Selye back in 1908 figured out um, a very early model is that organisms when acutely stressed over time have a very predictable curve. They go from, and I'm shorthanding his research here, they go from staleness to fatigue. I'm sorry, they go from fatigue to staleness to burnout to early death. So we are not well situated to deal with chronic stress. Our favorite animal in our houses are, our dogs are. And next time you think about acute, moderate and chronic stress, and you happen to have a dog and the male person knocks on the door, you know the dog hears a sound outside, what does their hair do? Their hair comes up, they kind of run to the door, they might bark. That's acute stress. Alarm systems go, ready to respond. And then as soon as they sense that that thread is no longer a thing, the challenge or the problem has gone away, maybe they think they solved it to be determined. Um, They walk back to their little comfortable rug or wherever they are. They shake their head. They roll their body, and then they kind of flicker their tail. Their hair comes down, and they could give you the biggest kiss or curl up in a ball and just be okay. As humans, we don't do that, Jim. <laughs> we ruminate. We think about, we talk shit to other people about it. Sorry for the locker room language. We, we we, we, just perseverate on the problem as opposed to having ways to be able to bring our hair back down and to recenter and recalibrate back to the next unfolding present moment. And it's that's a skill that can go a long way for so many of us. And I'll end it with this. We have a human energy crisis right now. We are exhausted. We are tired. We are overwhelmed. We don't like how life is going for most of us. And it's not because the external conditions are terrible. Matter of fact, we've got more excess than we've ever had than in any other time in life. It's not the external conditions are problematic. It's that our internal skills are not meeting the external demands. And those external demands are not going away. Your supervisor, your head coach, your whatever, they're not going to ask for less from you. They're asking for more. The challenge is on. That is why you and I right now are ringing the bell to be able to solve this human energy crisis. The fatigue, agitation, irritation, the time that you're spending not being optimized or lovely in life requires – An investment on your internal skills, your psychological skills. And if you don't invest in those, the brain will win. And the brain's dictum is managing survival. And the greatest threat is, do I belong? And if you're not sure you do whatever it takes to belong, including turning your back on your kids because you, you have a 60 second conversation with the morning and a six minute conversation with that night, because you are in service of fitting in and belonging. And the mission of the the corporate company that you're working for rather than some other kind of healthy balance between family and work life. I got to get off my soapbox. I'm starting to like slip all over the place here. (laughs) So I, I was going
1: to say, Mike, forgive the locker room talk, but holy shit, what a response that was. Now, let me first ask you, when you say I will leave you with this, do you mean you'll leave me with this to end this query or end the conversation? Query. I'm, that, in it. That, I'm in it for the long haul. I don't God, know how much time we have, amazing. With each other, but I'm. I, I love. I love our conversation. Me too. Me too. I, I. That. That was one of the most remarkable responses to a question I've posed, and I mean not for this podcast, but I mean my entire life, my entire career. So I mean, <laughs> you, you. We could spend a week on this, but mm. if we are trying to develop these skills, like I want that dog's life. I want that dog's life. I want to reach that yeah. acute stress and then I want to be able to go back to my chair and roll over and go back to sleep but if we're trying mm-hmm. to develop these skills
0: where do we start what can we do how do we start to make that better? yeah that's a really cool thank you for the kind words and that second follow-on is really good like what what can we actually do I hinted at it earlier the th- three of the best practices um, all facilitate increases in awareness so these are the only three I know. But the first kind of place to start is to increase your awareness. And you're increasing your awareness of two things. You're increasing your awareness of your internal experience and increasing your awareness of your external experience. So those are the conditions that are happening outside of you. More importantly, what's happening inside you? Without awareness of how like your thoughts work to influence your emotions, you're not even in the game. You're not, you're not even in the game if you don't know how your thoughts work well (laughs) with each other so where do we start awareness training and that comes in three primary forms mindfulness training a la meditation journaling it's a forcing function to get your thoughts out to be clear about your thoughts and your emotions and the third is conversations with people of wisdom where they hold up a mirror where they are able to have insight and discern and understand you and the the greater world and They just ask you like you ask very simple questions about yourself, though. And those are the three that force greater awareness. Now, once you have awareness, then it requires mental skills to be able to navigate the rapids of life. Okay. So it begins with awareness and awareness kind of pulls us upstream, Jim, to the calmer waters, and then we need to practice awareness training and mental skills training, like confidence, like uh, breathing training so that you can manage your emotions just a little bit better like mental imagery. So that when you, when your mind wants to go forward, it doesn't worry about everything, but you're actually seeing a future and how you'd like to show up in it. That's what athletes call imagery or um, visualization. Um, So those are three of the big ones, if you will. Optimism, training helps us in the rapids of life. When our brain wants to find the danger only, that the other part of ourselves can be able to find the opportunity that is laced inside of it. And I haven't met a world's best, I'm going to say it again, I have not met a world's best that is not fundamentally optimistic, but the rest of us want to say, oh, optimism, please, please. It's so weak though. You're just so happy and just finding the good and everything. They live in la la land. They don't really, you know, live in the real world. Mm-mm. They've trained their mind to find what is good and what could be good, and they know that for that could be good to take place, they have to really work. Work on what? Physical skills, technical skills, and mental skills, and all three of them begin with awareness training.
1: Michael, let me ask you something. Like One guy that I know we're talking about, and I'm curious if he was always like this or if he became like this when you met him, was Pete Carroll always fundamentally optimistic because I'm not sure I've ever come across a guy who's more optimistic or a person who's more optimistic than he is. And it's real.
0: Uh, Yes. Simple answer. He was, when I met him, he was fundamentally optimistic. And if we double click on that, even Pete Carroll, one of the great optimist emblems of optimism, um, is that he had to train it as well. He had to condition that way of seeing the world himself nobody is born optimistic versus pessimistic as best we can understand from science so we don't come into the world a certain way it is shaped and if your family of origin or your neighborhood block or your kind of larger community you know your school community at a young age is pessimistic because i don't know bad bad things have happened to them they feel burned let down taken advantage of that's why we build a protection mechanism such as pessimism hey don't get too involved now you know things don't really work out like that you know oh yeah look for the second shoe to drop it's coming you know that type of pessimistic um fundamental belief that the future is not going to work out so protect yourself is learned and you have to earn it because you've been through some hard times and so i'm not suggesting that you turn your back on hard times I'm suggesting that you have a counter rotation, a counterbalance to be able to say, yeah. However, there's also another narrative that's available. And that second narrative is like, if we just stayed in this game, a li- if we fought just a little bit more. I know we're down by 37 points at halftime, but if we could just be, have the discipline to play one play at a time, it could break free. You never know how it's going to go. We are built on rock solid training. Let's trust it. Let's trust each other. And that is that's the the substrate, if you will, of what holds credibility for an optimism for an optimist who's grounded in reality. They point to the training, they point to the capabilities, they point to the discipline to stay true to it. And then you never know how it's going to go. So let's stay in it now, and that's kind of how it works.
1: In other words, trust the process, trust your training. The standard is the standard. Michael used the word confidence. Confidence. I've heard you say this. The confidence comes from one place and one place only where is that
0: what you say to yourself that is the only source of which confidence springs and most people when you you know when you ask them whether it's an elite stage or you know high performing organization is confidence important they say yeah oh yeah at this level yeah 100 percent. and you say okay where's it come from most people want to say training or past success it's, it's not enough. You do need to have a credible history behind you, but confidence is what allows you to perform really well. And if confidence is only on past success or past history, what if the most recent success or most recent bit of information is mistakes and failure? Does that mean you're not confident? Does that mean you have to do some sort of gymnastics to only find the things that you've done well at? No. Confidence rests on what you say about yourself to yourself. And there's a calculus that takes place to it. We call it self-talk for short, but there's a calculus that happens right below the surface. And that calculus is you and I are constantly evaluating the challenge that's ahead of us. And we're also evaluating our internal skills to be able to meet that challenge. So if the challenge is big, And it's like, oh yeah, that thing, that, that 800 pound gorilla is legit. And then you say to yourself, I could never wrestle a gorilla. I, I've been, I don't have what, then there's no confidence. It might be accurate, but you don't have the confidence to meet that challenge. What happens for most people is they train their whole life to wrestle gorillas. Their whole life to wrestle gorillas as at least athletes. And then when the gorilla is in front of them, they start to worry if their training has been enough. It's normal no problems. That's kind of how it goes. But the calculus is, I love this challenge and I got some real skills. You know what my skills are? A, B, and C. And you know what? I've been tested. And I so I'll give you a fun story here Please. of where this came from. I was sitting in a small room early in my career with a um, MMA fighter. So he was preparing for a championship fight in the UFC. And I said to him, what's it sound like when you're in your head and it's good to be in your head? Like I was trying to get a confidence and he says that the best in the best state, there's nothing going on, but right below it, like when it's really good to be in my head, I'm saying I am a tough mother effer. Okay. Tough motherfucker. And I, so I looked at him unimpressed and I said, okay, now he's got tattoos crawling up his neck. His ears are sticking out. Like, you know, the, the cauliflower has been well-earned. Um, his, his shoulders are kind of merging between his earlobe and his, you know, his deltoid and, um, like he just shaved head just looks the lumpy part. Like he just got out of a, a, I don't know, some sort of like DC movie or something. And so, or Marvel movie. And so, and so unimpressed, I say to him, yeah. Okay. Can you back that up? And he kind of leans in and he says, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can. I said, okay. He says, I whipped my dad's ass when I was 14. what a tough motherfucker. Wow. I said, okay. Unimpressed. I say. Anything else? He kind of leans in again. He says, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, my last cage fight, I was being choked out. I broke the chokehold, put the dude on my back, dragged him across the, the cage, dumped him, and finished him in front of my team. I'm a tough motherfucker. I'm unimpressed, I pushed my luck one more time, and I said, yeah, anything else? And he said, if someone were to ask me one more question, I just might choke them out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the point is, about this whole Fun narrative here is that he knew what, how he wanted to speak to himself. And underneath the surface, he was very clear that he earned the right to say, I'm a tough MF-er. That is the mechanics for all of us. Know how to speak to yourself, know that that rests on some real stuff, and then be very skilled at loving the challenge that you've designed your life for.
1: I love it, except, not not accept, but to point out the obvious and maybe not so obvious to people because this is what goes on. It's so critical to be alone with your thoughts. You just said as much. Why then do so many people have
0: such an aversion to it? It's hard because when we're alone with our thoughts, um, one, they're not very stimulating. Social media. Conversations, you know, from Jim Rome are way more stimulating. So we'd rather be stimulated rather than get into the game of discernment. And like it's boring, Jim. Meditation, being with your thoughts, journaling is boring until you learn to love it because it's it is the ultimate roller coaster ride where you don't know where you're gonna go. So part one is boring. Part two is when you get quiet enough for just a little bit of time. You start to feel things and you start to feel things that are maybe pretty uncomfortable. You start to feel what it's like to question if you have done enough in your life, if you like yourself, if the knucklehead kid at age, you know, 14, who made fun of you on the schoolyard was right. You know, like you start to feel things that you've been shoving down. So now you've got the boring thing and this prickly feeling thing that emerges you know what, maybe I should just have a beer. <laughs> maybe I just should watch some TV. Because this, this whole thing about be being my best, I'd rather put lip service to it and just go to the gym and and work out rather than to really understand how my thoughts impact my body and how my thoughts impact my performance. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to train my body, I'm going to train my craft, and I'm going to flip a coin whether my mindset's going to be good game day. How about it? Hmm. welcome. To the 1990s to the early 2000s and hundreds of years before so that that is um not good enough and the best of the best of the best are showing us a better way they are training their mind they're training their craft and they're training their body and though those that train all three of those bet on them bet on that framework bet on them
1: i love that they're training their mind they're training their body they're training their craft a couple of quick things, Michael. I love this conversation so much. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. I want to ask you, what, what do we do with regret? You certainly can't change it. I mean, do you just accept that it already happened? You can't change it, ignore it, forget about it? Can you convert it into some sort of fuel? What do you do with regret? Because it can be so debilitating.
0: It's an emotion. And with that emotion, emotions are meant to create movement. That's what the uh, motion, part, emotion, creating movement. And so when you feel regret and you've got that, that's a really difficult emotion. When I said prickly, it's more than prickly. It's heavy. And there's some sharp barbs in regret. It's fucked up is what it is.
1: It's fucked up Mm -hmm. is what it is. I think it's dangerous. I think it's really bad stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so if you stuff it down, you don't really ever get to learn from it and you're going to have more of it. And then, so you want to feel it cry with it, feel all of that kind of excuse making that you normally do and call bullshit on that. And then, and then make some decisions about how you want to show up better in similar type situations. You can't fix it. You can't undo words and unwords, you know, or like things you didn't do or did do that hurt other people. You can't so, but you can be better. You can make a commitment to get better and I want to feel the regrets not take away the actions that led to it because somehow i needed those things to be to use your language i need to feel this fucked upness to not do it again and when people are honest with regret it is so radical and then if you can go take some action with it based on how prickly those feelings are um man you're on the right path now that's why um aa which is what I think is one of the most powerful movements in modern time. And it's very quiet and it's got a shroud of taboo around it, but it is so radical. I'm not a a, a caring member, but my favorite people are people that have been to the, to that hardened prickly difficult place in their life. And they say no more. And part of the regret process to relieve them from that is to feel those emotions and then make amends. And those amends are going to say, I hurt you. Like I stole out of your wallet or I embarrassed you. I did something that kind of was really screwed up. I got to now own up to it, Jim. I got to come to you and I got to do it in a way that like I'm as vulnerable as I can be. And I'm making you a promise. And you might say, pound sand, see you later. I don't care. You burned it. You ain't getting back in my life. And I got to I gotta deal with that. But that amend making process is a great, powerful process to be able to, for the rest of us to say, Oh, when we feel some stuff, we need to take some action. Hmm. And that action usually is not the easy path.
1: So, Michael, circle back for me to something you brought up earlier, and we can end on this. What, then, is the litmus test for a life (laughs) well-lived?
0: Yeah, so at the end of the life, most people get to the deathbed, and there's some really good research here. And most people say, I lived life on other people's terms. Because they were, the pool that they were swimming in was, you know, really about FOPO. Like I, they were over-indexed on fitting in and being okay and not being rejected by other people. So they just live life on other people's terms. The ultimate litmus test is to create a shot clock, is like to stop pretending that you've got more time. And I don't know if we're gonna see each other again, Jim. Like, I don't know. So, so I need to be all in. this conversation with you to my very best ability as often as i possibly can live with the shot clock as if life was running out with a with some urgency and us sports folks can relate to shot clock you know what that feels like we don't know how much time we're going to have left although the shot clock thing kind of falls apart because it says 35 seconds on the shot clock but if you lived life by a 35 second interval it'd be it'd be an interesting experiment to run So I'm just saying the litmus test is to pay attention to you don't know how much time you have and to embrace the fragility of life by being all in right now.
1: I absolutely love the analogy as a sports person and otherwise. Michael, okay, so I lied. Leave me with this thought. Number one, how in the world is this the first book? The first book that you've ever written. I find that very hard to believe, but I know it to be true. And secondly, our listeners, there's so much more in the book. Where do they go
0: to get your book? Uh, thank you. I I I I was so busy like like trying to figure out my voice and my way and working in the trenches of world-class sport that um, I finally came up for air on this. And I'll tell you how it happened really quickly please, before I answer please. the second question is I wrote it. I struggled with FOPO. I struggled with like this feeling that I just wanted to be part of something. And and I struggle with the fear of people's opinion. So I wrote an article about it in Harvard Business Review. And they called me 12 months later, Twelve months later, Jim, and they said, hey, you know that article you wrote? It touched a nerve. It was the number one downloaded article for twelve months in a row, so not you're not alone. And you and the athletes, you know that that talked about people pleasing and not looking stupid and not wanting to blow it. That's what a lot of athletes do talk about. You guys are not alone. It's it's alive in the wild. So let's write a book. So that's that's kind of how it happened, and where people can find it. Um, uh, finding mastery. I'm sorry. The first rule of mastery—you can get that book anywhere books are sold. Hopefully, it's local if you can do that. Amazon's a cool place as well. And the second is um, check check out some of the offers we've got on our website, findingmastery.com. So that's a really cool place to go. We've got great resources. You can take an assessment there and see if you've got some FOPO yourself. And so, findingmastery.com/slash oh no, findingmastery.com/slash FOPO assessment. That's the right uh, website. Right, so, so those are two fun places to check us out.
1: So, Michael, I have to ask, and I, I think I know, but I have to ask, if FOPO was one of the reasons that you did not write a book, what has the general reaction to the book been?
0: <laughs> I'm not paying attention. I, I, I don't <laughs> want to pay attention. Great, like, attention. You know, But I will say the really fun story here is that um, we hit top ten. In the international Beautiful. bestseller list, good for you! So Congrats. Um, we we cracked that, which is cool. That as soon as the book was in hard form press, you know, hardbound and it's in press, um, uh, my, my my team and my family members, which we've all read the book before, as it was being edited, found six mistakes. Hmm. <laughs> so there's six mistakes in the book um, that showed up after print, which is uh, apparently not terrible, but it's pretty funny. And so I don't know it is it's in the wild that's for uh, others to to have fun you know hopefully seeing themselves in it and and getting better and and I'll be remiss if I didn't say uh, the Finding Mastery podcast is another place to to join the party you know, like we, we love what we're doing there, too.
1: Absolutely. What an amazing conversation. I'm am so pleased that you and I were able to spend some time together because you're right. Michael, the shot clock is always running. You want to make sure you take advantage of every opportunity. And I, I can't thank you enough for being as intentional, as focused and sharing as much of yourself and your time as you did today. That was absolutely amazing. And I appreciate you
0: and the friendship so much. I love the gym Rome. Episode that we're we're co-creating here. Thank you for giving me this space. And I love what you're doing out in the wild, Jim. Appreciate you. Appreciate you.
1: Wow. I mean, that is an incredible dude with an incredible mind and one of my favorite people ever. He has worked with some of the world's greatest achievers, both in and out of sports. And the fact that we as lay people or business people, or content creators, or stay-at-home parents, or whatever our calling is, have access to somebody this elite is incredible. Take advantage of that opportunity. Buy Michael's book because it is as critical as it is groundbreaking, and I could not be more thankful that he once again made that much time for this pod and all of you. Once again, if you're finding value in this pod, please feel free to share it with others. Hit the subscribe button and leave a review. It goes without saying that all helps. Just as it goes without saying how much I appreciate all of you. Thank you for listening. And I will find you all next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.